and it's uh, I've I've really enjoyed uh, doing this. We're taking a book and covering about on average a book a week, and so there were some other books of the Bible that were lengthy and multifaceted, and we we took a few weeks to get through some of those. But lately, it's been about a book a week for quite a while now, and uh, I've really enjoyed studying for this. Um, I guess every Christian, when it comes to their Bible, they have areas they know better than others. And so, for me, coming into the study, the minor prophets were the ones that I was probably the least familiar with. Uh, most preachers, at least in the ministries I grew up uh, under, they stayed away from the minor prophets. You'd hear a sermon here or there, or it would get referenced here or there. And uh, I probably know about, I probably have committed memory about a verse, a book, out of the minor prophets, uh, but uh, keeping them in context of the passages, or uh, the, the verses around them, uh, really adds a whole other dimension to those verses that I even have memorized. We're going to look at one of those verses here in a moment that many of you probably have memorized. But uh, beyond that, i got to say that this has been a really good blessing to me, just to see how awesome the Word of God is. And I'm just thankful that for the rest of my life, I can study this book, and I'm never going to exhaust it. Isn't that wonderful that you can study it and study it and study There are people that study the Bible for hours and hours every day, and they never, ever dig to the bottom of it. And it really is a, a great, uh, it's deeper than the deepest ocean as far as the knowledge. And the beautiful thing about it is that you have this incredibly uh, uh, complex book that is written in such a precise way, and it does not contradict itself on any level at any point anywhere just says to me that God authored the Bible. It's pretty amazing. But we're going to look uh, very closely at the book of Amos tonight in the time we have. Let's look at Amos chapter 3. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Hopefully by now you found it. If you don't know where it is, use the table of contents. Amen? And uh, that'll help you. Or use a smartphone or a tablet. That, uh, that'll, that'll take care of that as well. Amos chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first three verses there. It says, Hear this, that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore will I punish you from all your iniquities. Now look at verse 3. Here's the verse most of us are familiar with. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Here God is telling the Israelites, Listen, I have continued down the same path that we used to walk together hand in hand. And you have left my side, and we are so far apart from each other that we cannot walk together any longer. I cannot associate with you any longer. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Tonight we're going to look at the book of Amos. I've titled the Bible study this, Prepare to Meet Thy God. Let's pray. God, I do ask tonight that you'd help us as we look at this book, that we'd understand the book. But God, we know that 1 Corinthians tells us that knowledge puffeth up. And so, Lord, we don't want to leave here uh, more puffed up and proud. Lord, we want to leave here challenged by what we learn. Lord, may we take what we know, and Lord, may it uh, push us to obey the Bible and to become more made more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. That's why we congregate regularly. Lord, it's to worship, it's to pray, it's to fellowship, but... Ultimately, God, um, collectively and then individually, we want to become a group of people that are uh, more and more into the image of your Son. So I pray tonight that this, uh, this book would challenge us in those ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
Now, let me give you some background of the book. That's what I usually do uh, when we jump into a book. First, Amos. Let's talk about Amos. He authored the book. Uh, he was uh, a prophet uh, there. And i got to tell you, look at chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to look at what his profession was prior to being a prophet. The Bible says, The words of Amos, who is among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So it says Amos, who was the herdman, who was a herdman. So we know that he was a shepherd. Furthermore, turn over to chapter 7 and verse 14. We'll see that he was a, um, uh, he handled multiple uh, different, he, he rather did two different types of farming. He did sheep farming and then one other type. Look at verse 14 there. Then answered Amos, and saith to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Now, a gatherer of sycamore fruit, that would have made him a fig tree farmer. So he was a shepherd and he was a fig tree farmer. Now, interestingly enough that he was not born and called to be a prophet right out of the gate. Uh, his father wasn't a prophet and he wasn't necessarily a prophet. He was just a shepherd and a fig tree farmer, a sycamore tree farmer, and a man who walked close to the Lord. And one day he felt God calling him to leave his current career and head into being a prophet of God. And no doubt there was a lot of risks involved with that. Now, he was from the northern, uh, or rather he was from northern Judah or the southern kingdom. He lived in northern Judah and felt God calling him to leave Judah and travel up to Israel and preach against Israel. Now, you may remember from a long, 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 long time ago, those of you that were here, uh, those of you that weren't here, you may not require, you may not know this or you, uh, you weren't here to hear it, but, uh, Judah would have some godly kings sprinkled in amongst the ones that were heathen. However, the ten northern tribes of Israel, they would not have any godly kings. All of the kings of the ten tribes of Israel, after the split, once you have the divided kingdom, all of them, the Bible says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Which is why, by the way, that Israel was carried away into captivity, uh, most likely why they were carried away into captivity before Judah was. Judah had some good kings. They had uh, their Jehoshaphats, and they had their Hezekiahs, and so on and so forth, their Joashes, but uh, not the northern kingdom. So here comes uh, Amos to preach against the sins of Israel. Now, while he was doing that, Jeroboam the second, there were two Jeroboams that were king in uh, Israel. The second Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second, was the king of Israel during Amos's prophesying. And during his time, watch this now, because this is really key to what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, Jeroboam led the country into great financial wealth. Great prosperity. They saw great an abundance of wealth. They defeated their enemies all around them for a good long time. And they had peace in their land. They had money in their land. In fact, Jeroboam was a wicked king, but he reigned for 41 years. Now, if you know anything about Israeli kings, that's a long time. Especially when you get down to the end. They were coming in and uh, mutiny was being committed. They were killing each other. And it was basically king of the hill, right? Whoever was the strongest would become the king. So for Jeroboam to be king that long, that was quite impressive. But nonetheless, he did evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord those 41 years. Now, here's why I mentioned the great wealth and much prosperity under Jeroboam. Just because... Just because you're doing well financially, that does not mean that you're right with God. 
Don't miss that here. This is important. Uh, Pastor King, when he was here, he mentioned during our revival, he mentioned that if you live within an hour of Interstate 95, then you are among the top 10% of the richest people in the world. Uh, even the poorest people an hour off that 995 corridor coming up uh, from the mid-Atlantic up through, up through uh, the northeast, uh, even the poorest people still live amongst the top 10% of the richest people in the world. And truth be told, we live in the top 2% of the wealthiest people that have ever lived in the history of mankind. But just because you have wealth, that does not mean that you're right with God. There are a bunch of phony TV preachers that like to get up and say that uh, you give your money to this ministry and God will bless you abundantly. And they want to equate uh, they want to equate holy living with financial prosperity. But I got to tell you, the Bible says, "Blessed are the." Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we know that uh, the rich man in Lazarus, Lazarus was poor, but he was rich in heaven. Now, what are the themes of the book? A couple of them I want to point out to you here before we get into the points of the of the uh, Bible study here tonight. Uh, the first point I want to point out is that God rejects religious people that worship Him but neglect the poor. Uh, he rejects. Religious people that worship Him but neglect the poor. Turn over with me to Amos chapter 5 and verse 11. We're going to look at this verse a couple of times tonight and some other verses around it. So we're just going to hit this real quick and then, jump, and then move on here. Verse 11, uh, Amos 5.11 says, For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. Now, notice there, they were treading upon the poor. Uh, look down at verse 21. Look down at verse 21 in the same chapter. I hate, I despise your feast days. Going back into the old, or further into the Old Testament, these are the times they would congregate in Jerusalem, or rather, uh, for them it would be Dan and Bethel, to have their feast days, their, their holy weeks where they would come and, and celebrate. I despise your feast days, and I will not, uh, I will not smell in your solemn assemblies, uh, though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offering of your fat beasts. Uh, take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. God said to these folks, He said, because you are neglecting the poor and even taking advantage of the poor, we'll see how they did that in just a moment, I don't want your worship. You snub your nose at the poor people on the way and you do nothing to help them. You enter into a place of worship. You sing all the right songs and you do all the right acts. God says, I don't want it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Another place in the Bible, I believe it's in Isaiah, he says that your, uh, your oblations, your worship is an abomination unto me. Why? Because of the way that they were living. And God sees that as just being hypocritical. Let me say tonight, God does not want you to be religious. He does not want you to be religious. James chapter 1 verse 27 says this, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, excuse me just a minute, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep them keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, I've said this many times, a religion is mentioned in the Bible four times, twice here in James 1, 
Um, three of the four times religion is mentioned, it is mentioned in a negative way. Only once is it mentioned in a positive way, and it's here in verse 27 of James 1. What is pure religion? It is to visit the fatherless and the widows. Who are the fatherless and the widows? They're the down and out of society. In a lot of ways, you can say that they are the poor of society. Now, not every widow is financially poor, and not every fatherless person is financially poor, but can I tell you what they, all, what they both have in common? They are relationally poor. They're relationally poor. And oftentimes, people that are widows, they are in need. They need people to help them step up. People that are fatherless, they are in need. They need others to help them step up. And what is pure religion? It is to visit these folks. It's to love on these folks. And then also to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Uh, let me give you another um, theme of the book here. The people uh, grew weary of hearing the sermon of Amos and the other prophets. They did not want to hear the preaching of the prophets anymore. They had begun to grow tone deaf to it and began to tune it out and even uh, to a place where it began to get on their nerves. Now, I'm a dad and I have two children and sometimes they get rambunctious and they get loud and they play. The other night uh, we were watching some friends of ours from um, up, upstate Connecticut. They have two small children. Um, uh, they have three small children. One's a newborn, but the one was a, a two-year-old girl. Then they had a four-year-old boy. And then Matthew had an eight-year-old friend over. We had five children in our house at the same time. And i got to tell you, the noise level like quadrupled over what it usually is. It was a madhouse in our house. There were, there were Nerf bullets laying all over the floor. There were baby dolls on the floor. Uh, it was just like my wife's pretty little museum of a living room turned into a total pig pen of a mess. And there were, uh, the kids had slung this, um, uh, 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 chain up around the fan and they were trying to shoot Nerf bullets through it. And I, it was, it was a madhouse in our house. Personally, I loved it because I grew up the oldest of seven children and it made me feel like I was a little kid again. But my wife was like, I can't take this any longer. She's ready to get checked into a loony bin, I think. Uh, but um, uh, uh, what am I trying to get at here is that uh, you can tune only tune out that kind of noise for so long. And then eventually you get a headache and you're like, stop! Put the Nerf guns away! Go to your room and play the quiet game. And these people had ignored the prophets. They had grown tone deaf to it, to a point. And at some point, even though they had been trying to block it out, there was still that spirit pricking them inside. And eventually they said, Stop with the preaching! We don't want to hear it anymore! Um, One of the reasons why I like to have guest preachers come in and preach uh, regularly, and I like to take some time out of the pulpit and not do it three times a week, 52 weeks a year, is because I don't want my voice to become to a, you to grow to a place where you become tone deaf to my voice. I work hard to not say the same thing in the same way every time to to beat a, a, an old horse into the ground or uh, beat on the same things all the time in the same way. But nonetheless, new people come in and preach, and then my voice maybe will be a little uh, you'll you'll grow a little less tone deaf. But I got to say this tonight is that if you're not careful, you'll grow tone deaf to preaching in general. And I'm talking to good people that love the Lord. You get used to hearing preaching. I guess in my lifetime, I've probably heard 20,000 sermons. Maybe more. Uh, When I was a Bible college student, I was probably hearing 10 to 15 sermons a week. And that was for four or five years. It took me five years to get to college because I'm not as smart as you. Amen? Uh, I was working a full-time job. It was nuts. 
But um, uh, I've heard lots and lots of sermons, and I've got to tell you what I've got to watch for. While I'm sitting in a pew hearing someone preach, I've got to make sure that I'm not just tuning that guy out, because I've heard sermon after sermon after sermon. You've got to make sure you're doing the same thing, that you come here and on purpose you're listening so that the Word of God can speak to you. What had happened in the book of Amos is that the people had heard so much preaching from these prophets that they had tuned it out. Eventually, they told Amos to get lost, though. Look at chapter 7, verse number 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of, of, of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. They were tired of hearing his sermons. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah saith unto Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away in the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. Get out of Israel, go back to Judah and preach your sermons over there. But prophesy not against uh, any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. He was saying, we're tired of your sermons Get lost. Get out of here. And that's where, verse 14, he says, listen, I'm, I'm not, um, I wasn't originally called to be a preacher. God called me to prophesy, and that's why I'm here. Let's jump in tonight at the outline and look at five concepts, perspectives, as we uh, study the book of Amos. If you have a prayer bulletin on the back there, there's some blanks for you to fill in as we go. Notice, number one, uh, the countries around Israel. The countries around Israel. Now, this is fascinating here. If you know the book of Amos well, this is something you could have very easily overlooked. And uh, i got to tell you, I really enjoyed finding this this week as I studied. Uh, here are the, uh, uh, Go back to Amos chapter 1 with me. Let's start right at the beginning of the book as we also start at the beginning of the outline. And look here at verse number 1. It says, The words of Amos, who was who among the herdmen of Tekoa, uh, look down at the end of the verse. It says, uh, The son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake... And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the inhabitants of the shepherds shall mourn uh, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord for these transgressions of Damascus. Now hold on here. Uh, in the beginning of Amos 1, he says that he's going to preach against Zion, against Israel. But then he turns his attention to Damascus. Damascus has nothing to do with Israel. Damascus is the capital of Syria. still is. has nothing to do with it. Uh, throw that up there. Damascus, okay? And then go down to um, verse number 6, and you find this. It says, Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza. You can put the next one up there. Gaza. So, first he starts in Damascus, and then he goes down to Gaza. You can throw the next slide up there for me. And we see that there is a circle. Good. As we list the last city there, you can just go ahead and and get those uh, up there for us. Look down at verse number 9. Verse number 9. It says there, Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four. Tyrus, another city outside of Israel, the ten, uh, the ten tribes of Israel. Verse 11. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Edom and for four. Uh, look down at verse number 13. We find Ammon there. Uh, Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four. Look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four. And then chapter 2 verse 4. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Judah. Now, look here what we got. Go ahead and advance those a little further for me. Get all the way down through Judah. Ammon, Moab, Judah. Next. Go ahead. Next slide there. Alright. So um, you have God is circling in. He's starting far away from Israel, 
and he's coming in closer to them. Look at uh, chapter uh, number, uh, uh, let's see here, uh, chapter number 2, and you, you see, I didn't put it in my notes, I've got to find it here. Chapter number 2 and verse number 6, here it is. Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Now we're going to look at the allegations against Israel in great detail here in a minute. But here's what I'm trying to get at is that Amos is, and these people very well knew the geography better than we do, Amos is circling in, and he's coming in hard on Israel. Next slide. And he is targeting Israel. Israel is in the center of the bullseye that Amos is drawing. By the way, the allegations laid out against Israel would be three times as long as those he lay out for every other country. And while we can look at history and say how all these prophecies against these other places came true, the the point of this here of God listing all these other cities was to say, uh, 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 Israel, uh, I'm coming in on you. While I'm going to judge the countries around you, uh, you are in the center of the bullseye of my judgment here. Number two, point number two, we see the cycle repeated by Israel. The cycle repeated by Israel. Look with me at chapter 3 and verse number 2 there. We see letter A, their exclusivity. The Bible says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. You only have I known... Uh, 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 of all the families of the earth. What's this referring to? This is referring back to Genesis chapter 12 where God comes down and He chooses Abraham and He says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, right? And He singles him out and then we know Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob uh, whose later name is later changed to Israel and then uh, they, He has 12 sons and the 12 tribes are named after those uh, uh, sons and two of His grandsons and uh, they were exclusively Chosen. They're exclusively chosen. Now, let me say this. With great choice comes great responsibility. With great choice comes great responsibility. Now, in the Old Testament, pay attention to this closely, God chose the Israelites. In the New Testament, God chooses the believer. The believer. So, you have been chosen by Christ. With great choice. With great choice comes great responsibility. God has chosen you, He has saved you, and He has given you a responsibility in how to live. Uh, it's, I, would, I would equate it to this, alright? Matthew and April had no choice about being born in my family. Right? They were born in my family. I, Angel and I chose to bring them into the world. Uh, they didn't get a choice in the matter, but uh, nonetheless, them being my children, there is great responsibility upon them on how they behave. There's also great responsibility on me to raise them right, but I expect them to do some things. I expect them to follow the rules of the house, to live in a way that represents the Lejeune name well. With great choice comes great responsibility. Here's where this is different. While Matthew and April did not choose to be my children, listen to this, you chose to be a Christian. You chose to put your faith and trust in Christ. I would liken it to this. If there is an adoption case that goes on in court, 
You have the prospective mother and father over here, and you've got the prospective uh, uh, child, adopted child over here, and the judge is here, and the parents must choose the child. I'm talking about a child of age, and that child of age must likewise choose the parents. Both parties have to want it before it can happen, and after that choice is made, that choice is Permanent. And my friend, uh, you stood there. God was choosing you. He wanted you. And there was a day you put your faith and trust in Him, I hope and pray. And you chose Him. And but by the choosing of Christ and Him choosing you, there is an exclusivity there. There is a choice there. And with that comes great responsibility. Now, let me likewise say this. When you neglect, when you neglect that responsibility, there comes great consequences. There comes great consequences. What happened here to the Israelites? God had chosen them. And Abraham had chosen God. God had chosen Abraham. And all of these people walked alongside and God looked over them and He protected them. Uh, look back in the Old Testament. You can see all the stories about how God catered to and loved the Israelites and cherished them and, 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 and helped bring them along and, and, and rose them above all the other nations of the world. And then they neglected Him. They didn't only neglect Him. They neglected the responsibility that came through that choice. And then there was going to be great consequences uh, in, in, in mind of that. Luke chapter 12 verse 48 says this, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes for unto, uh, unto whomsoever much is given of much shall be required and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. Have you been given salvation tonight? Are you saved? Do you know you're on your way to heaven? Uh, has God chosen you? Have you chosen God? Then there are some responsibilities that come with that. What are those responsibilities? Well, God wants you to live with your heart in line with Him. God wants you to worship Him daily. God wants you to pray daily. God wants you to read the Bible daily. God wants you to have His song on your lips daily. God wants you to take His Word and share it with others around you regularly. Letter A, we see their exclusivity. Letter B, we see... Their enslavement. Their enslavement. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 10. Amos chapter 2, verse number 10, it says, Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, we'll, we'll look further at the verse in just a moment, but why were they in Egypt? Because they'd been enslaved. Oh, you know the story, right? They were carried down into uh, they, uh, Joseph, and uh, the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. By the way, uh, I believe that the great punishment of selling Joseph into slavery was that the, the brethren would end up having to live there, and then their descendants would be slaves. The sin of the father being visited to the third and fourth generation. You say, well, if Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery, there would have been no famine. I don't even know if God would have sent the famine if Joseph had never been sold into slavery. Now, I can't climb in God's head and know all those things. We'll have to get to heaven and get it all sorted out. But God chose to send the famine. And God could have stopped the famine. And so, why were they enslaved to begin with? Because they had taken Joseph and they had sold their brother into slavery and they had lied about it to their parents. And so, here we find them enslaved in Egypt and God looks down and sees them there. Now, there's a word I want you to write down in your notes next to this letter B and that is the word injustice. We're going to come back to that word in just a moment. But injustice, because what was happening to the Israelites in this place is there was great injustice being done to them. They had no freedoms. They had no rights. That had been stolen from them there. And they had 
a whip being cracked on the back as they made their bricks and they built those pyramids and they built those various things there. And so they uh, were being treated in an unjust way. And Amos is reminding them of their time in, in Egypt here. Letter C, we see the emancipation. The emancipation. Look back at verse number 10. Amos chapter 2 verse 10 says there, And I uh, also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. We know the story, right? I won't dwell on it, but Moses comes and uh, uh, leaves there working for his father-in-law. God, uh, sees the burning bush and he comes down and ten plagues on, uh, on Egypt. And after the tenth plague of the killing of the firstborn, he gathers together the Israelites, that first Passover, the conclusion of that first Passover. And out they march up to the Red Sea. They're trapped. He raises the rod. The Red Sea splits. They walk across. The enemies come in and are killed by the collapsing there of the Red Sea, and they were emancipated. They were given their freedom. They cried out to God, and God looked down at the injustice that was upon them, and He came down and He rained judgment on those that were serving injustice and brought their freedom. Now, letter D, we see the evil. The evil. Fast forward several thousand years. Fast forward many, many years later. The children of Israel, through Joshua's leadership, had marched in, had taken over the land. God had allowed the evil workers of iniquity to be wiped out. The land had been given back to them. And they set up, and you know that generation under Joshua, they served the Lord all their days that they lived. Then there arose another generation that knew not the Lord, and they did that which was right in their own eyes. You have all the judges, and then you have all the kings. Now here we are to the end of the kings, and they have grown so far from God. Think of it this way. Imagine a married couple that on their wedding day, boy, they're just nestled up to each other. They just love each other so much. And, and their, their hearts beat the same. And they, they love each other. And they're committed to each other's side. And then at some point, they start to do this right here. They start to split and go their separate ways. And what was God doing? God was staying down the right path. And Israel was cheating with the world. And God would smack them hard with uh, slavery by another nation. And then a judge would rise up and, and they would get freedom. And then they'd, they'd snap back to God's side. And they would apologize and, uh, for their adulterous ways. And then eventually they would drift away and come back and drift away and come back. That's that cycle, right? There's the, there's the enslavement because of their sin, then the emancipation, the freedom. Then the enslavement and then the uh, emancipation. This time, under Jeroboam II... They had grown so far away from God and had been so far away from God for so many years that God was done. And God looked down at them and He saw a people that weren't just living in sin, they were living in evil. Now, let me talk about that word evil for a minute because this is so important. Um, Recently, that word evil has been in the news to describe the Las Vegas shootings, some other things that have happened. Evil is different than sin, right? Right? Uh, if I tell a white lie, and put white lie in quotations, you may say, oh, pastor, that's innocent enough. That's sin. Okay? But if I take a gun and I lay people out, that's evil. That's me trying to inflict great hurt on other, on other folks. God looked down on the actions of these Israelites right before they were taken captive by the Assyrian army. And what did he say? He said, uh, he said you are doing Evil. Let me show you some of the ways they were doing evil. Uh, write these uh, down here. First, notice that word injustice again. Injustice. Now, they had injustice done to them 
when they were in slavery, they have forgotten. Now they're doing injustice to others. Look back at chapter 2, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because, look here, they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. They sold the poor for a pair of shoes. What injustices were they guilty of? They were walking all over the poor. They were walking all over them. Not only were they taking advantage of the poor, they were selling them into, into a, a debt slavery. Debt slavery. Oh, well, you can't afford to pay me the ridiculously high price I set for this item. And you bought it on credit because you, you, you couldn't afford to pay for it up front. And you haven't paid me quick enough. They'd take them to the judge and the judge would put them in debt prison. We see, therefore, a pair of shoes. A pair of shoes. They were walking all over the poor. Not only were they taking advantage of the poor, they were selling them into debtor's prison there. And, and this is why Amos references Egypt. He says, do you not, are you forgetting the injustice that was served against you? And now here you are serving that same injustice on others? This is the first allegation of evil that Amos rises up and tells those folks. Uh, look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word, ye king of Bashan, uh, that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, oppress the poor, which, notice the wording here, crush the needy, which say to their master, bring and let us drink. And so we see again the hurting of the poor. Chapter 5 and verse 11. Uh, For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor. Look at chapter 8 and verse number 6. Chapter 8 and verse number 6. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. They're exchanging some poor person for a pair of shoes or for some small amount of silver and they're, uh, they're just rough, running roughshod over the poor. Let me say tonight that the Bible is very clear that you are to love the poor. You're to love the poor. I've said this before, but there was a time in my life where I would look at someone standing on the street corner who was homeless, and I was very cold-hearted toward him. You bum, you need to go get a job. And God has broken me down on that. I don't give cash to anybody I don't know, because I don't know what they're going to spend it on. And I don't want to enable their sinful addictions. But I will say this, we are to love the poor. We're to love the poor. We're to give to them. We're to help them. We're to go out of our way to take care of them. The Bible tells us that we'll always have the poor amongst us. And uh, you might remember that Jesus praises a crowd and he says uh, uh, that uh, when did we love you? When were you poor and homeless and thirsty and hungry and cold? And he said, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. They were being evil. We see their injustice. Number two, uh, the second uh, way they were being evil, we see their immorality. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 8. The Bible says there, And they lay themselves down upon clothes to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Verse number 9, Yet destroyed I Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, Yet I destroyed his fruit from uh, above and his roots from beneath. Uh, there's a verse here. I wrote the wrong verse down here in my notes. But there's a verse here in chapter 2 that talks about uh, how that the father and the son were sleeping with the same woman. 
The father and the son were sleeping with the same woman. It's right there. If I had a moment, I'd I'd look it up. But uh, uh, how how is that possible? That a son and a father would want to be with the same woman. How immoral is that? How evil is that? Well, uh, there are a couple of uh, things I wrote down here as far as possibilities. And uh, we do know that some of the gods they worship there at Bethel and Dan, that their priests were male and female prostitutes. They were the priests. So could it be that the father was going into it, one of these prostitute priests, and then later the son was going in under the same woman? Uh, that's definitely a possibility. And uh, here Amos is seeing this wickedness, and he's calling it out. Could it be that these were street prostitutes, or could it be that it was incest? Nonetheless, immorality was great among them. The third evil I see here here is the uh, uh, is the evil of idolatry. Idolatry. Chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 there, we find that uh, they were going in and laying down on clothes that were borrowed and they were drinking wine that was condemned in the house of their little G God. We know from studying in the Kings and the Chronicles that these gods were, uh, uh, now you may remember uh, that they had set up and established the very uh, the various uh, uh, golden calves there in Bethel and Dan. I believe it was Jeroboam that did that. And they added to that over the years, they added Asherah, who is a god of sexuality. That was the one that had the prostitutes for priests. They had the god of Anat, that was the god of weather. And they had the god of Baal, who was the god of war. And they would worship these gods. And uh, he was coming in and he was calling them out for their idolatry. Now, let's move on here and see number three, the components for a godly Israel. This is so key, even understanding of today for our country, and then also for our own home structure and even our church structure. The components for a godly Israel. Look here at chapter 5 and verse number 24. It says there, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Okay, so we see two components here. Letter, I'll give you the letter A and letter B really quick here. Letter A is righteousness. Letter B is judgment. Righteousness and judgment. I want to talk about those words because God picked the Hebrew words here on purpose. Okay, that word righteousness means this. It means justice. It means honesty. It means, this is, this is key here, community loyalty. Community loyalty. It has the idea of treating everybody in the community the same. You say, but they don't smell as good as the average Joe. Community loyalty. It's righteousness. This is so important. I am to treat the mayor that walks in the back door just the same as I'm to treat the homeless man that walks in the back door. This was missing in Israel. They were loving on people that had money and they were selling the poor for a pair of shoes. Righteousness. Listen, when you get away from that righteousness, that right living with God, that uh, not being a respecter of persons, boy, you get yourself in a mess. Look at chapter 5 and verse 4. Look here. For thus saith the Lord, uh, uh, for thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, seek ye me, and ye shall live. Seek ye me. That's that seeking out righteousness. Who is the king of righteousness? Well, it's Jehovah God. 
It's Jehovah God. And so, if you're seeking out God, then that righteousness from verse 24, that flows naturally. Alright? Letter B, judgment. Again, 5 verse 24, chapter 5 verse 24, look at it there with me again. You see it says, but let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness is a mighty stream. Now, uh, the mighty stream, that these are the two keys, the two components to a godly Israel. You have that righteousness, that my heart is right with God. I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm loving my neighbors as myself, regardless of whether they're rich or poor, regardless of what they have. That righteousness running out is a mighty stream. But then the judgment. What is the judgment? The judgment is there for when people are not righteous. Not righteous. If you have someone that is beginning to mistreat the righteous, now you can have that court of law to step in and fix it. That word judgment, its root word there means decision or judgment or legal decision or a law. Look at verse 14. Fascinating here. Look at verse 14. It says, seek good. Seek good. Now, verse 4 said, seek ye me. Verse 14 says, seek good. So, the seeking of God is seeking righteousness. The seeking of good is seeking judgment. So, seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so the Lord, the, uh, the, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. So, those two things that we're supposed to run th- uh, through like a river are judgment and righteousness. That judgment keeps the righteousness in check. But what was happening was these people were going to court with their slaves and the judges were being as unfair as the people that were doing the prosecuting. The righteousness was gone. The right judgment was gone. And that had caused caused Israel to drift way away. And they were no better than the Egyptians that had enslaved them. They were no better. They were no better at all. And God was saying, or God was saying here through Amos, He was saying, you need to seek out righteousness and you need to seek out judgment. Now, let me make a great point here. I'm almost out of time and I've got a little more to cover here. But let me make a really great point here. Is that when you worship sexuality, righteousness goes out the door. But when you worship God, righteousness is natural. When you worship the weather... You can't have both righteousness and judgment. When you worship the God of war, such as Baal, you can't have both. But when you worship this God, oh, that's why He's supreme. Because He's the one and only true and living God. Righteousness flows like a river. So does judgment. So does judgment. The two components for a godly Israel. Let me ask you a question tonight. Is your heart righteous? Are you concerned with right judgments? Number four, we see the consequences of a godless Israel. I don't have time to finish developing this. I wish I did. Let me just help you fill in the blanks. I'll make a couple of quick comments. Letter A, why they were deceived. Why they were deceived. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. They were deceived because they thought, well, look, I got money. I got money in the bank. If I, if I could bring this into modern terms, I drive a nice car, I live in a nice house, I work a nice job, uh, uh, life is great. And so they were deceived. They were deceived into thinking that spiritually they were okay because financially they were okay. And I've got to tell you, there are a lot of people in this world that are financially set and spiritually broke. They're spiritually broke. Don't let money in the bank make you think that everything's great. You ought to live your life in a way that says, God... 
I don't need you to hurt me so that I'll walk with you. I want life to be good and I still am walking with you. Letter B, how they were destroyed. How they were destroyed. So we see why they were deceived. Letter B, how they were destroyed. And these aren't in your notes, but I have here chapter 7 and verse 1. You find a locust plague. That's probably the locust plague that Joel prophesied during. Okay, uh, uh, Chapter 7 and verse 4, you find a consuming fire. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, you find the Israelites compared to overripe fruit that an army would come in and take. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, you find an inescapable captivity. And that, that inescapable captivity would be the Assyrians. By the way, this would happen only 40 years later. He would say, you're going to have an army come in and wipe you out and you're no longer going to be. You're going to cease to exist as a country. And that happened. Assyria came in and took them away and they would never return from captivity. Number five, we see the commitment to restore Israel. Look, uh, turn over with me to chapter nine. And here's what I love about God. Is that God is ultimately concerned with being long-suffering and merciful. Even in His judgment, in His fierce judgment, what He wants to do is correct and then bring back one day to a place of great perfection and show that loving kindness, that compassion. Look at verse 11. By the way, as we read these, keep in mind that this is speaking of the millennial reign of Christ where Jesus will sit on David's throne and rule this world forever with Israel being again the center of the world. In, the day, in that day uh, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the and, and and of all the heathen which are called by my name shall the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the day come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes himself that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and at the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They also shall make gardens and eat the fruits of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. And this is not talking about the restoration of Israel that happened in 1948. This is talking about the ruler being from the throne of David, which obviously is Jesus, the descendant of David. And one day, uh, God will sit and rule and reign, and our world will become Israeli-centric once again. I, it's going to be a great time uh, during that time. There are many different things that could have challenged you tonight. But of all of them, I would just encourage you in conclusing with this. Don't grow tone-deaf to preaching. Don't let it happen to you. Hear sermon after sermon after sermon. Bring a prepared heart each week, each time, regardless of who the speaker is. I've attended some churches that had some boring pastors. I hope you don't attend a church that has a boring pastor. I hope not. You may feel that way sometimes. I work hard to not be boring. But when I have attended churches that had pastors that weren't uh, really good with their delivery, listen, I prayed, I would pray most of the time before I'd go in service and say, Lord, Help me to be blessed by something that's said today. Bring a listening ear on purpose. and Let God's Word challenge you. Don't become like these priests at Bethel, these wicked priests at Bethel that 
pushed out the preacher until they were sick and tired of hearing it. And then they would, uh, then they just said, leave us alone and go away. Don't do that. Make sure that you keep a tender heart toward God's word and the preaching of his word. Let's, let's have our heads bowed and eye closed tonight. And let's stand uh, this evening and um, as Miss Melissa gets to the piano and prepares to play. Uh, tonight, I just encourage you, with however the Lord speak, spoken to you, don't be guilty of that cyclical leaving. Stay close to the Lord. Keep your heart tender toward Him. As the piano plays, the altar is open. Amen. Amen. You can look this way. Thank you so much for your attention throughout the message this evening. And uh, be in prayer for those traveling down to Maryland tomorrow. As I said, we have about eight couples going down. The shuttle bus will be taking most of them down. So pray for uh, traveling safety and for all of that. And then uh, after the service tonight, deacons, we have a deacons meeting. And so don't linger. Get upstairs quickly so we can have that and get out of here. cover what we need to cover and be able to go home. So thank you again for being in church tonight and continue to pray for each other, continue to pray for our country, and continue to pray for God to use this church as we move forward. God bless you. You're dismissed.